Hey, and welcome to the Hashtag Angels podcast, where we bring you conversations about the latest tech trends with the people inventing and shaping them. I'm Jessica Varelli, and this week I'm joined by my co-host, Jana Measuresmith. I've only been in venture for a few years, but it is never to me like felt more bananas than right now. We sit down with the CEO of Nurex, a female-centric telehealth company that we backed here at Hashtag Angels, Varsha Rao. Believe it or not, people did not believe that women would buy things on the internet. <laughs> we talk about building e-commerce businesses in the 90s versus today, how she handled bad actors on the Airbnb platform at scale, and how she helps companies she angel invests in. All right, let's get started. Varsha, how did we meet one another? I think I met Varsha at Twitter like 10 years ago. Um, when you were living in Singapore, we chatted. I think we'd maybe gotten connected through Shailesh. Is that right? I think I was trying to recruit you for some reason. <laughs> I don't know if that's even possible because, or no, I think I was seeking a role at Twitter in Asia when mm. we moved out there. Yes. And, mm. you know, at the time, there weren't a lot of companies that were even thinking about expanding in Asia and having leaders in Asia was like, pretty like off the beaten path. I think that's how we first met. Yeah. I actually didn't know you were living in Singapore. What brought you to Asia? My husband actually had a role there. He got, you know, the opportunity to work there and we just thought it would be really fun to have like a family adventure. Um, And it was great. We were there for five years and our kids became fluent in Mandarin and we traveled all over and it just gave me a ton of exposure. And I'd actually never, I, you know, I'm Indian and I was, but I was born here in the U.S. and I've actually never lived abroad. So it was like one of those things I'd always wanted to do. That's amazing. So I think for today's conversation, maybe a good starting point would be, why don't we start with what is Nurex? We think of ourselves as the leading telehealth platform for female-focused and focused on women ages 18 to 50 plus. Uh, We started off um, focused on contraception, but now we've really evolved into this healthcare platform. Uh, So we offer uh, access to sexual health, STI testing, and then we've gone into migraines. And then about a month ago, we launched um, dermatology with acne, which is doing incredibly well. Uh, In general, you know, our view is that we want to reduce barriers to care. And there are tons of barriers to healthcare out there. And so making care more accessible, providing high quality care and having it be cost effective is core to our mission. And we do this all asynchronously, uh, which again helps to reduce the stigma as well as the barriers because even like video consults Mm -hmm. can create a lot of logistical challenges. And then the other thing that really sets us apart is that we we're end-to-end. So you can get the care from us as well as access to labs, as well as the medication all delivered to your home. And and that's really been amazing, even pre-COVID, but with COVID in particular, people have really wanted to avoid settings that were potentially going to be putting them at risk or just inconvenient. You know, when you talk about barriers to access and care, where are like the typical places that you find that people have a hard time getting access and what are those reasons and how does Nurex specifically solve those? 
So I think there's um, hurdles that come in a number of forms. One is uh, geographical. You know, there's about 20 million women who live in contraception deserts, Mm -hmm. really where there's not a healthcare clinic that provides contraception within, you know, a geographical range that's just too far for them to access. It could be a couple hours. Uh, Second is around economics, right? It can be expensive to access care. You know, for us, it's $15 to do a consult. And it's, you know, typically you can get contraception as low as $15. So we try to make it super affordable to be able to get access to both a healthcare consultation as well as the medication, even if you don't have insurance. The third is really around stigma, I would say, you know, there's a lot of places and for whom a lot, a lot of people for whom talking about some of these areas, whether it's migraines even, where there's still stigma associated with people who have migraines and don't feel confident and comfortable mentioning them because people often say, oh, you're just making it up. They dismiss their symptoms. We see a lot of this in the surveys that we've done and talk to our patients, certainly around sexual health, mm-hmm. even around acne. A lot of people feel like People have been blamed for their own acne, Mm. that, hey, it's about what you eat. If you just ate better, if you just slept differently and better, you know, you wouldn't have these issues. And it's really not about that. Acne is a chronic condition. Migraines can be chronic or episodic. And so we want to reduce the stigma that's associated sometimes with getting care. And then the last thing is really logistics. If you think about um, our healthcare system today, It's filled, it's friction filled is the way I think about it. It can take 24 days to get a non-urgent care appointment. You then have to get, go off and go to get labs. That takes another week or two weeks or three weeks or four weeks. Then you have to go and you have to pick up your medication. 50% of medications are not picked up from their pharmacy. And so all of these steps, it can, if you have a simple condition, it can take you months to get them resolved. Mm Mm-hmm. And jumping a little bit off from that, what inspired your interest in tech? And did you did you imagine yourself as a CEO growing up or as a founder? And tell us a little bit about those mo- moments of inspiration around. So Jess, first of all, it was a long time ago. So I think the concept um, of even being a founder was, it wasn't even like a concept back then. Like uh, I definitely did not see myself as a CEO But I I would say I probably always had a little bit of an entrepreneurial bent in me. My mom and dad had a a printing business, a print shop, and I would spend summers, you know, working there and trying to figure out how do we grow the business. And I realized it was really hard. But I think the inspiration to start Eve.com, which was the beauty company, uh, really came from my work when I was doing, when I was at McKinsey, where we started, I was working... um, there and we were doing this research around how techno- how companies were using the internet back then to drive just change or learn and that research ended up being so interesting i found it i honestly i found it way more engaging than my client work mm-hmm. i took a leave of absence and actually we came up with this idea myself and my former roommate and they allowed me to just kind of go and explore it and actually, before we knew it, we had raised initial capital and I and I, I quit my job and got going. So it was um, it was really the kind of exploration that I got to do at McKinsey uh, that 
that got me into this. And what was the original product journey for Eve.com? What problem were you solving? And how is that different from a different place where you are now solving other e-com problems with Nurex? Yeah. So I think the initial problem we were trying to solve is, you know, we were, uh, myself and my co-founder, we were busy working women. You know, we were in our late 20s. We were, you know, traveling for consulting and, and banking type roles. And we didn't have time to go to the the department store to buy cosmetics. And that was the initial problem we were trying to solve. Uh, what we found very quickly was that in addition to replenishment, which was kind of what that was based on, we found that there was a lot of people in different parts of the country who wanted access to all these great brands and great products that if you didn't live on the coast, you didn't have access to. Mm -hmm. And so we quickly found out that our sort of replenishment oriented focus for cosmetics was way broader than what we thought. And how did you like get the customer flywheel going? Because I mean, now, like if you're starting a direct to consumer brand, like, you know, if you put money into certain channels, Facebook, Google, et cetera, like you're going to be able to start to get a customer flywheel going. But like back in the late nineties, where did you find those initial customers? I mean, internet advertising was so nascent. Like, what was that like? We did a lot of magazine advertising. So, and we did a lot of PR. So PR, I think, is still an amazing flywheel. It's been a huge part of the success at Nurex, actually. We grew really organically for our first two years at Nurex, just through our mm-hmm. rolling state launches, where we had huge waiting lists. And just as soon as we launched, people would show interest because there was just such a demand for the services. Perhaps because it's so topical, too, because access to birth control, it's just such a topical product offering too. So I imagine earned media and PR um, is probably really well suited for that. Yeah, I think, of course, like, and actually what's great about contraception and sexual health in general is there's huge support from honestly, state governments. Everybody really wants to increase Mm -hmm. access. Um, There's nothing, uh, we, we have a lot of support in terms of wanting to increase access. And so I think it's a story that a lot of people want to talk about. Mm hmm. And then fast forwarding again, you ended up in a leadership role at Airbnb where you were running global operations for many years, reporting to Brian Chesky. And are there certain things you learned from Brian or certain certain things that were modeled by other leaders you've worked with that you now try to incorporate into your own leadership style? I think when we when I got to Airbnb, culture and mission were just so at the forefront. I just really learned how important that was. And I think the founders at Airbnb just, it's so ingrained in what they've done and what they do every day that it was just an amazing example. And that really taught me how powerful having a great mission and having like really being thoughtful about culture from like literally their very earliest days. Like, you know, they talk about it all the time that it was just the three of them. They had no employees and they still put forth, they, they created the core values then. And I think that's pretty amazing. So I, I have, I learned a ton from, you know, having like really being core values driven, being mission first. And then how do you make decisions based on that versus um, even having it, be present, but less, um, like kind of more under the radar and under the, you know, under the surface. 
You know, when you were at Airbnb and you're running all of operations, I mean, it was just at such a time of hyper growth and hyper scale. What was the biggest operational challenge that you ran into there during your tenor, tenure? And then also would be curious to know what your biggest like success was now looking back. So one, when I first got there, uh, believe it or not, like growth had slowed. Uh, it seems like hard to imagine because, of course, growth has continued to, you know, it actually accelerated, has accelerated now for several years. But growth had slowed. And, you know, I think people weren't sure what was going to happen. Like, were you going to have a continued, were we just going to have continued gro- downward growth or were we going to have to be able to like bend the curve? And I think we we sat down and my role as head of global ops, I had, you know, a lot of the, all the country managers and city managers reported into me. I also had kind of local marketing at the time we had a kind of a hybrid marketing structure where it was, some of it was done locally and some of it was regionalized or centralized. And what we realized is we had like really great people in all these markets, but a lot of the decision-making was totally centralized. Mm. And so they weren't really able to do a whole lot. And because I had lived in abroad, um, my role right before this, before Airbnb, is I had had all of Living Social's international business across 14 countries and about 2,000 people. And so I kind of knew what it was like to work with teams around the world and empower them or give them like freedom in a framework. Mm-hmm. And so one of the first things we did was we kind of gave people a, a budget and a way to invest locally in their markets within a framework and kind of created a playbook for driving growth locally. And that was actually one of the first big things that we did to help to kind of bend the curve. And we actually saw, you know, in 2014 growth, like it was, you know, really we were already a pretty big size and we, we did actually have this really nice, like upward kind of reversal of growth, which was great. And then actually went on, has gone on for, for several years. It's been augmented by continuing to, continuing to invest in, I would say two things. One is new markets. So it did a lot mm-hmm. of work in Asia. Uh, I think part of the reason I think they liked me when I, to join um, was because I had actually lived in Asia and I'd had a lot of experience about what worked and what what were the challenges. So we were able to invest in Asia and Asia's, I don't know it exactly today, but it's gone from like probably like a 1% of the business to almost close to like 20%. Mm. Wow. And so there's a, a lot of investment that ended up being a key growth driver. And then the other... Um, big thing is like new areas, like verticals, you know, vacation markets, vacation rentals or homes, markets outside of cities. Maybe that's the way I should say it. We're not a big part of the business, believe it or not, in in kind of like the early days of Airbnb. It was mostly cities. And, you know, that's kind of what the core bread and butter was. And so we also kind of invested in these areas that had typically been like uh, VRBOs, a mainstay. And we realized, no, we could also be in this market as well. And that took, you know, some product, it took leadership, and it just took investment in order to also drive that part of the business. So I think those are some examples of the problems we had and then sort of how we tackled them. It's amazing, like that groundwork that you were laying like five, six years ago, how beneficial that was during a global pandemic. You know, I think when COVID first hit, everyone was like, oh my gosh, like Airbnb, like what's going to happen? And then the business has just continued 
to explode. Anytime you're building a marketplace that interacts with real people in the real world, at some level of scale, you're bound to have bad actors or you're bound to have externalities or like there's going to be some guest somewhere that like destroys someone's house. How do you lead during times of crisis? Because I think a lot of founders we work with now, it is just part of what you have to expect in the bumpy road of building a company. Here's what I would say. I think healthcare is like a different level that you have to play at. I, I would actually just start off with that now having been at two healthcare companies. It's really important to be super buttoned up on everything from compliance and patient safety because the the risks are are, are just so high. So I, I do think that, you know, for me, being I've had some healthcare experience, but you know we have this. I have this amazing GC at uh, GC compliance leader at Nurex, and I view her as like a super important thought partner to help make sure that we're just navigating in a way. And then also working with our chief medical officer to make sure we're always putting patient safety first. I would say that in marketplaces that are outside of healthcare, it's an interesting dilemma. You know, if you're super focused on all the regulation, you might not do anything, you know, but if you break too many rules, then you might not be allowed to operate anymore. So finding that right balance is really important. I actually really have liked um, Airbnb's approach of being collaborative, but still innovative. You know, they were always at the forefront pushing the envelope, but they always wanted to collaborate and were willing to collaborate. And I think that's kind of like the right balance. You know, if you're waiting for permission, yeah. you're not going to be able to innovate. Yeah. I don't think any successful founder has like been waiting for permission. You just can't. You can't. I mean, no one, you'll get a no always. It's much safer. It also feels like for some of um, the popular marketplace companies that push the boundaries on regulatory, you know, whether it was Airbnb or whether it was Uber or Lyft, having... Not waiting for permission, but then having like this massive groundswell of consumer demand also pushing on the regulators, like was just so powerful in comparison to just, you know, a company or lobbyists trying to do it. And it's interesting. I know, Varsha, we're both um, investors in Chef, yeah. which is a marketplace that allows... Um, people to cook, um, you know, either in their home or in commercial kitchens and provide food to consumers who demand it. And I think that is another, like, I think that could be potentially like one of the next big, like marketplace companies, because there's such a demand of people wanting to have amazing food and to support local chefs, um, and support people in different ways. But I don't know. I'm pretty bullish about that one. I love chef. I just placed an order last night because I... (laughs) don't have a ton of time to cook. I want, you know, healthy food and I don't, um, and I love what the company is doing. And I totally agree with you, right? That, you know, it's a lot harder for regulators, politicians and whatnot to ignore everyday people who are actually benefiting from companies. Mm -hmm. You know, in the case of chef, chefs are making money. People who otherwise might be out of work are making money. They're doing it in a safe way. Um, I think the team has done a great job in like curating and managing the quality of the food, you know, and I think 
that's a great example. And I think similarly with hosts making really good incomes and secondary incomes and the story of how people are able to stay in their homes. And it's really hard to just, you know, ignore all of that. So I think there is this balance um, of when is the right time to engage with a regulator. And ideally, it's after you have a little bit of critical mass. Mm -hmm. I would say just stepping back and thinking about all of this I think, you know, the way um, I actually did oversee trust and safety and customer service at at the time as a part of my global ops role. I think it's pretty interesting in marketplaces to be able to look at how do you handle situations when they occur in the most empathetic and way Mm -hmm. so that you can really when something happens, you can make people feel whole and really save them Mm -hmm. as a as a customer. I think there's also a lot of really interesting tech and data that could be used increasingly to anticipate and even identify potential bad actors beforehand. And I, I think that's also kind of an emerging area that's pretty interesting to employ or deploy. Um, and I was able to like do a little bit of that when I was there. So Bersha, I want to switch lanes a little bit. Um, You are a super prolific angel investor. Tell us a little bit about some of the different types of companies that you get excited about, any verticals that you're focusing on, what your kind of like angel investing strategy is. Yeah, let us get inside your mind on that. So my first strategy is to invest in the things that Jana and Jess invest in. (laughs) Um, But, you know, all jokes aside, I invested in Nurex because, Jana, you introduced me to the company. And then now, look, I'm here as the CEO. So I... um, I'm super grateful for being part of a network uh, and your network because it's uh, I've been introduced to a lot of great companies that way. I guess in general, like I feel like I have had experience of being a founder and then having been, you know, at a couple of tech companies. I just love building things and being, you know, helping being part of company, you know, founder journeys to help support and build feels really fun and exciting. And, you know, I obviously am still very active as an operator, but I, I guess, live a little bit vicariously through my angel investments. um, And that's just really fun. And so I guess when I think about the areas that are exciting to me, you know, I gravitate towards earlier stage companies where, Mm -hmm. you know, they're still, formation and um, there's still problems to be figured out. And there's, you can see like, you know, I guess within a year or two, it's like the dramatic improvement in terms of either getting to product market fit or getting those first 50 customers or, you know, the first 10,000 consumers, like whatever it is, that just feels like super fun and exciting and satisfying. Um, Even though, You know, I think I also really enjoy scaling because that's also where I've had a lot of like my operating experience. And so that's why also staying with companies along the way feels really satisfying and rewarding. And some of the investments I've made are now kind of I really probably got active over the last five years. Mm -hmm. So now some of them are starting to get to a stage where my scaling experience can be valuable. 
And Varsha, I have to give you um, a, a compliment. Um, so I recently brought Varsha into a, a deal uh, that I was leading. Um, I won't say the name of the companies because it's still stealth, but um, Scott said that you actually like spent the time to go through in depth on forecasting data, like launch um, plans. And he was just blown away by how in depth you went, um, especially given that you're like the CEO of a super successful company <laughs> that you took the time to really go into the weeds with him. So I've heard this now from numerous founders um, that we've co-invested in. So it's really awesome that founders are getting such incredible value out of you. Well, that's nice to hear. I guess I'm just kind of curious. Um, I have an operational bent in me. So I find it really interesting to understand, like, what are the go-to-market plans? And, you know, also, you know, what what's worked in various settings that I've been in and if that could be valuable for people. Yeah. And I, I guess I learn a lot, actually, too, to be honest. Like, I think there's so much innovation going on in go-to-market plans, in building product. So a lot of our the founders that I meet these days, are they're literally developing new things. And so I can also take some of that back to my org. And it's led to lots of like cool ideas that we've also been able to implement. And it's none of it is competitive, so it's great. It's a win-win. You know, I'm curious. So you raised venture capital in the late 90s. Um, you are also raising venture capital in 2020, 2021. Do you think we're in a bubble? Like, are there parallels to the late 90s? Like, maybe just talk a little bit about what fundraising is like at these two crazy times. Our first time we raised was actually not that easy. It was late 98. We were two people, two women, young women in a PowerPoint. And we had a lot of hurdles, a lot. Yeah. Believe it or not, people did not believe that women would buy things on the internet. <laughs> uh, I know. It's just like kind of insane. Um, all the V, I mean, we met with the best VCs and most, if not all of them were all male. Yep. They could not relate to buying cosmetics at all. They all sort of said, oh, I need to ask my wife. It was kind of ridiculous in my mind. And one of our VCs, there was a woman around the table and she's like, I, I would do this like tomorrow, <laughs> you know, bring it on. Like, and that was, you know, we got a term sheet from Menlo Ventures just based on the fact that Sonia Howell, Sonia Perkins yep. had, she could just totally relate to it. And so that was a really good example of where the ability to relate the ability to sort of see yourself in the protagonist or the consumer shoes was driving mm -hmm. the investment decision. But I would say it did get pretty easy and pretty crazy. Like when we launched in July of 99, we had a launch party and um, we actually got one firm who actually gave us a term sheet at the party. <laughs> and back then, back then you printed it out and I was wearing a dress and I was like, okay, where do I put this? Like, and I, I didn't have a pocket in my dress. Um, so it was kind of crazy. So how does it relate to now? I think there are probably similarities, but when I think about today, it does really feel so I think maybe the valuations are similarly a little bit crazy too, but I do think the acceleration that we're seeing because of COVID feels 
very real. Yeah. I mean, the market, I've only been in venture for a few years, but it is never to me, like felt more bananas than right now. And it's driven by so many different things, you know, cheap money and, you know, abundance of time. And so like the barriers to meeting with a bunch of VCs for founders, you know, have gone down because everything happens over Zoom. And so it's just like every deal is competitive. There are multiple term sheets. Prices just keep going up, up, up. But it's a really fascinating time to be, I think, in the investor seat because you see so much innovation happening. And that is because of like this, you know, once in a century global pandemic that's really changing how people think about how they get access to certain things. So, you know, I think you guys being in the telehealth market, once someone has experienced NERCs, like why would you ever go back to the former status quo? Um, so I don't know. I'm, I'm pretty bullish about the, the future ahead for NERCs um, and especially with you at the helm. Thanks, uh, Jana. Yeah, we've seen tremendous growth over the last year. Um, we were we had super healthy growth before, but COVID has just accelerated yeah. so many trends. And I think what's great is you know people used us and other telehealth services because they kind of needed had it didn't have a choice. You know they were. They wanted care, needed care, couldn't get into their provider, didn't want to go to the pharmacy, a whole host of reasons. And then we have gotten so much feedback about, wow, like now that I've used this, I'm never going to go back, right? It's changed behavior, increased trust, and people are sticking with those behaviors. I think, so we're seeing that. I think mental health as a part of healthcare is a really good example where I think providers were skeptical about offering mental health and, you know, therapy and other forms of um, behavioral health services over video and over telehealth. They were forced to. And then now their patients like don't necessarily want to go back to the couch. And that is going to fundamentally change the number of people who even seek care which I think is a good thing because I think the the demands, we see a huge demand from our patients, mm. a huge number of people around the world in all sorts, everywhere are suffering from anxiety and depression. So I think everybody could benefit from more access. Right on. So Varsha, one thing we like to do on the pod is wrap up by just giving a shout out to someone, just kind of shining a light on somebody in your world who's been a positive, inspirational figure? Yeah, I think there's two people, if you don't mind. First is Regina Benjamin, who's on our board. Um, She's the former Surgeon General uh, under the Obama administration, and she is a clinician, but then she also, uh, she's a clinician, and she has a um, clinic in Alabama that she still uh, operates. And I think what's super inspiring about about Regina is just her understanding that, yes, as a clinician, as a healthcare provider, you need to be super thoughtful and careful about giving care. It's it's absolutely important. But she also has this really um, interesting point of view that not giving care is also a risk. Mm-hmm. And so that has been really um, helpful to navigate as we think sometimes, you know, it's easy to be always super cautious, but, you know, she's also reminded us by saying like, Hey, you know, when you don't offer care, Mm -hmm. that's also hurting people as well. And so how do you think about the right balance? Um, 
And so that's been really inspiring for me and just helping me think about that right balance because our mission is access and we want to, you know, we want to do more and all within the guidelines and the, um, the right boundaries. Uh, so she's been great. And then I guess the other person I'd have to go back to is my dad. You know, my dad is just, um, he passed away two years ago and, um, forever will stay with me as the person who's helped me think bigger and, um, and to, to, to try to do more. He really came from a place where, you know, boys did everything and, (laughs) and yet he had two girls and he really thought and felt like we could be anything. He made us feel like we could do anything we ever wanted to do. And that's kind of like given me this crazy view on like, I don't know. Yeah, maybe I could do it. Um, I never felt like I had limitations. And so now I kind of want to engender that in other people, certainly the people I work with, the people I might invest in and my kids and, you know, how do we make people feel like they can do anything that they want to do and not have these like, you know, limitations built for them, given to them by others. Mm -hmm. I love that. I feel like that's such a big part of the Silicon Valley ethos is like, we should all just be like cheering people on who want to do these absolutely game-changing things, like remove the hurdles, like just push people up, like try to like do anything you can to make them successful. Um, I don't know. To me, I think that's just such a big part of what's like always attracted me to the tech industry. Totally. Yeah. I mean, I would say, you know, I had a small stint, uh, you know, in banking back in the day. And when I, part of what attracted me to tech also was it was like, it was so different. There were no, mm-hmm. it felt, everything felt possible in tech. And, you know, and at least also coming out West where I grew up on the East coast, it was like, didn't matter who you were, what family you came from. It was just all about what you could do. And I still believe that in tech and in, in California, which is what keeps me here. I you know it's not perfect. There's a lot to do, but I still think it's a place of great opportunity. And especially for, you know, those of us maybe who are not in the majority. Mm -hmm. Thank you for joining us and sharing a few of these stories and a little bit about your journey along the way. Um, We are big fans of Nurex. Jana's lucky to be an investor and we're so grateful to have you in our broader Hashtag Angels community and just network. Thanks. This is really fun, Uh, ladies. I really love what you guys are doing. I think you guys are both um, amazing, super... um, super big advocates, I feel like for the community at large. So I'm huge fans of yours. So I'm, I'm so grateful for the opportunity to be here. Awesome. Thanks, Varsha. That's a wrap. Thank you for listening. To keep up with Varsha, you can follow her on Twitter at Varsha Rao. Next up on the pod, we sit down with Mercy Grace. Mercy is a former product executive at Slack, investor at Lightspeed, and now angel investor and advisor. If you're enjoying the pod, we would love to hear your feedback. Please leave us a review or drop us a tweet on Twitter. We're at hashtag angels. Uh, We would just love to hear from you. The Hashtag Angels podcast is a production of H Industries. The episode was produced and edited by Matt Herrero, and our theme music was composed by Toby Forsman of Whipsong Music. Thank you for listening, and we will see you next week.